What's up, everybody? This is Fred Ricciani of TSC News. I have right here via Zoom, not one, but two very special guests. They're authors, baseball historians. One of them is even a doctor. We are talking to John Owens and Dr. David J. Fletcher. We're going to talk about the legendary Dick Allen and their brand new book chronicling his legendary career with the White Sox in 1972, Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox, and a Transforming Chicago. Gentlemen, Thank you so much for the time. How's everything going? Very nice that you're you're interested in the book and giving us a chance to uh, to talk about it. And it, it means a lot to us. So thank you. Of course. Likewise, appreciate you guys coming on. But I got to ask, John, you're a well-respected writer, author. David, you, on your Twitter bio, not only are you a doctor, but it says you're a part-time baseball historian. You're not just that. We'll get to it in a second. It seems like you two, at least on the surface, are an odd couple of sorts, especially when it comes to collaborating on a book like this. How'd you two link up? Well, um, I met Dr. Fletcher back in 2004. I used to work for the Chicago Tribune. I worked for their multimedia department. Uh, and the Tribune is connected with, uh, uh, Tribune Bro- was connected with Tribune Broadcasting at the time. So I produced a documentary on Chicago baseball for WGN-TV under the auspices of the Tribune. And one of the people that I interviewed was Dr. Fletcher. Dr. Fletcher at that time was uh, uh, had a campaign uh, to clear Buck Weaver's name. Buck Weaver, as you know, is one of the eight Black Sox who was unfairly maligned and, and, and lumped in and accused of cheating when he actually didn't. And Doc was um, heavily involved in trying to clear Buck's name. And uh, um, we hit it off and and, and worked on some other projects. Dr. Fletcher can tell you better, but he's been uh, a part of an initiative for for a couple of decades now called the Chicago Baseball Museum, which is a great initiative to um, generate interest in Chicago baseball. And and, uh, Doc, you could probably talk a little bit more about the museum. Well, um, John and I hooked up in in early part of the the last decade, and he did a great documentary on uh, baseball city pastime in Chicago. So we've had a professional relationship since then, but our biggest project we did before Chili Dog MVP is we did a documentary on Buck O'Neill, Buck O'Neill and Black Baseball in Chicago that really got good reviews. And um, it was uh, accepted for the Cooperstown Film Festival. So I presented it in 2010 with Billy Crystal. He was showing 61 film at the time. And so uh, John and I have kept together, and this is kind of a project I wanted to to do with him. And I think it, it's a, I think it really helps for this book that there's a you know a white kid from the suburbs like me, and and John's a black kid from the shadows of Comiskey Park to give the perspective. And I I really believe that's the specialness of the book, is our viewpoints coming together and kind of amalgam of 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 the story. And people have really liked that, especially when we've done some of these interviews is we give these different perspectives. And I think that was really important for the story because um, this is a big civil rights story. Dick until he came to Chicago was never appreciated. And he found Chicago so welcoming and, and he became very close to his white teammates who just beloved him. Obviously we've got Goose Gossage his first year in baseball with the forward. I mean, he absolutely his favorite player ever, best player he's ever seen. You got third baseman, Bill Milton, and talks about Dick. And, and I, it just, 
it's just a special story. And the fact that John and I have come together, it's really been a, a, a joy to do. So how did this concept come about for the book? Obviously, you two are, are huge fans and, and historians of the game. Uh, but what, what made you decide at this point, OK, this is the time that we have to tell the Dick Allen story uh, for, in a way that hasn't been told before? I had done in 2012 this Dick Allen tribute that the White Sox um, and came on board. They had really ignored his historical significance to the franchise. So um, I had worked for years to get Dick to come back to Chicago, finally convinced him to come back. And we had a very special event. You know, he came twice to Chicago in the month of June 2012, and he was beloved. Uh, front page to some of the newspapers about him coming back. And the tribute was really, really successful. We got a lot of the players from that era to come. And so that was sort of the genesis, the 40th anniversary of the 72 team. And so I started working on uh, this uh, book project. It actually started in 2008 when we were working on the Buck O'Neill film. John and I went to Cooperstown uh, that year uh, as part of our, our research for the Buck O'Neill film. And, and Goose was getting inducted that year in the Hall of Fame. And so we actually asked a lot of questions to Goose in the press conference beforehand about his time in Chicago. So that was really kind of the spark of the book. But what really pressed it forward was the fact that uh, Dick, in his fact, even passed over for the Hall of Fame. I became very close friends with the family and Dick himself. Uh, and he'd get lost by one vote in 2014. He was supposed to be, or another vote was supposed to be in 2020, but that was delayed because of the pandemic. Sadly, he died uh, a day after when the vote was supposed to be in 2020. And so we knew the 50 year anniversary of the team was coming up. 50 year anniversary of his MP, MVP season. Plus we knew that he was gonna be in the Hall of Fame vote this past December. And so all those factors came together to uh, push forward with the book. And John and I started this on in October of, of uh, 2020. And, and we've gone since then and, and uh, been a fun project. Definitely seems like a labor of love. And one quote that I love that you two have had throughout interviews talking about this book is that he was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan in Chicago. Can you just kind of elaborate on that for any younger fans that may not understand? Well, that's Doc's quote, but I mean, it's definitely true. Dick Allen really took the city by storm. He was already a star in the National League with Philadelphia and St. Louis and Los Angeles, the Dodgers, the White Sox, um, it, nationally, they have, a, they, they're, they're the second team in Chicago, second to the Cubs. And, and, and to a certain extent in Chicago, they're the second team as well. They weren't for a long time though, from in the 1950s and the 1960s, they were the top team and the most exciting team in town, but their, 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 their fortunes fell after 1967 and they lost, they lost a significant part of their fan base and were threatening to move in 1969, ironically, 90 miles north to Milwaukee. Um, and Dick Allen, he really um, he exploded on the scene here in Chicago when he was traded here in 1972. We, we had never seen anything like like him. He was not the first African-American superstar in the city by, by any means, but he was he was a unique 
a unique talent. Um, his, his he was a five tool player. Uh, he was a, a must see TV and appointment viewing at White Sox Park because he was just so incredibly talented. Um, he did everything well, and he did it with a flair. So that's why it, 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 Doc's quote, you know, he was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan, just because he 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 just was be, beyond the norm, he, especially for White Sox fans who had never experienced a slugger quite like him before. He energized the fan base like no other person. He took the uh, the Cubs off the top of the fold, put the White Sox up there, and basically saved the franchise, which was going to leave, brought the fans back. 1970, the team lost 106 games. Within two years, they had a 70 game swing of wins. But basically, he was just a charismatic figure. He was cool. He had this persona of just, he had the cigarette in his mouth, the Sports Illustrated cover. And I had that cover up in my bedroom, you know, wall when I was a 17 year old high school senior getting ready to start pre med. And I still, in 2022, still had that cover in my bedroom. But at this time, it's signed. But it, it just, he really uh, reached out to um, white kids in the suburbs because he was just such a mysterious figure. And that's, that's the best thing I'd say, mysterious, but he also was charismatic. And the big thing was, just like Michael Jordan later on, he was a huge draw on the road. And that was a big thing is they finally got some national attention because of his heroic uh, uh, home runs and just basically being so special. Why do you think his tenure with the White Sox didn't last as long as maybe some people think? Because if you read the, you read this book, you do some research on him. I mean, it's such a magical season, magical tenure, but it only lasted from 1972 to 1974. It's unfortunate that it didn't last longer because this was – when Dick would reminisce about his time in the majors, he would always say that his time in Chicago was the highlight of his career. But he, you know, he, he had suffered through injuries um, uh, through, uh, through the second half of the 1973 season. And he actually broke his leg uh, during a play where he collided with Mike Epstein um, in, in midsummer in 73. And he, it, he, he, it was hard for him to recover from that injury and other injuries like the injury they suffered to his hand back when he was in Philadelphia, when while pushing his car up a hill, he, he broke his, his hand broke through um, um, his head, his headlight and uh, severed some tendons in his hand. So he was dealing with a lot of different injuries and I, 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 he couldn't perform the way he wanted to perform here the, the last uh, the last year of his career. And I think that 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 uh, affected uh, him and it shortened his time here. He, he also had some some issues with um, other teammates, most notably Ron Sano, who was acquired in the 1974 season. And the, there was some pushback from Ron Santo. Um, so it, it, it was a combination of things that shortened his career here. That said, you know, 1972, 1973, 1974, he still performed despite the injuries at an extremely high, high level. Um, uh, he was an MVP candidate all three years on the all-star team, all three years. It's just that the, 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 the injuries uh, took its toll. And, and it, it, you know, he, he didn't really ended up in Philadelphia in 1975 and 1976 in Oakland in 1977. But his career was 
on the downslide, you know, after his time with the White Sox anyway. So he, you know, he had, you know, due to injuries, his, his career was, was uh, shortened and the, his White Sox career was the, you know, the late, his, his, you know, three years with the White Sox were the last three years that he really performed well as a player anyway. I would like to just to make one quick point on piggyback on what John said. Until he broke his leg in late June of 1973, he was going to going on to have a repeat MVP season. That was the basically that that injury you know, devastated the White Sox. They fell out of contention. They also had Ken Hendrickson, who they got for Tom Bradley, who was a center fielder. He was a tremendous hitter. He got hurt, but. In you know, June of 73, the White Sox were, were really favored to win the division. Bill Milton was back from his back surgery in 1972. The fans came out even more than 72. But uh, uh, you know, the injuries were what, really what shortened his career. And I had an opportunity to examine his hand on several occasions uh, after I got to be you know, close to Dick. And I don't know how he ever swung that 40-ounce 40, 40 bat because his right fourth and fifth fingers uh, from the ulnar nerve was severed and he had some permanent damage. I, you know, it just tremendous how he was able to even play. You're a doctor, obviously. I mean, I'm sure you understand it as a, as also a sports fan, how far we've come with nutrition. I would imagine with modern medicine and the technology and, and nutrition techniques we have today, his career probably could have been prolonged a few years, right? Oh, for certain. I mean, he, he definitely had some, uh, I would consider some poor medical treatment. Uh, the actually the doctor who took care of him for the White Sox for the 73 fracture went in the media uh, after the season was over, said he was a malingerer. Uh, you know, that's not a, you know the most comfortable thing that uh, in, you hear. You have to remember he was the highest paid uh, ball player, uh, 225,000 a year that year. And, and so it, it, it hit him in the pocketbook. And he, he left that last year of a contract uh, on the table when he left the team in September of 74. That said, you know, that said, he he did have a fairly long career. I mean, it was a 15 year career. And for 10 of those years, there was no one better. I mean, his uh, war career war is 58.7 uh, um, higher than any of the other uh, it, it, uh, um, veterans who got into the Hall of Fame uh, over him, higher than Tony Oliva, higher than Jim Cott, higher than Gil Hodges. Um, he had a great career and it was a, it was a, a, a extensive career where he accomplished uh, nearly everything that he wanted to accomplish with the exception of he, he didn't, he only made the postseason one time with the Phillies past his peak in 1976. Why is he not in the hall of fame already? Why has it taken so long for him to truly get his due in baseball history? The reason is, is because of uh, his relationship with sports writers in Philadelphia. That really set him off, uh, got him a negative rap that he was uh, kind of a crybaby. Uh, you, know, you have to remember it was a different era. He faced incredible racial issues. The Phillies sent him down to Little Rock in 1963. He was the first black player down there. Uh, he came up to the Phillies at the end of that year. And they didn't really you know, protect him with all the racial strife and he gets a fight with Frank Thomas in 1965. So it's, it's a, that's the white Frank Thomas. And it's just a cascade of things. And so that negativity surrounded him. And there's the, 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 the you know, the belief he was a bad teammate and he was hard to manage and stuff like that. 
And he was one of the first players that even more free agency was would hold out to get the best deal and stuff like this. And so he was he was basically way ahead of his time. And so that that stigma sort of is stuck with him. Uh, and some also some people hold it against him. They quit the White Sox in September of 74. You know, we talk about that in the book, you know, what really happened. And so that negativity has surrounded him. And so um, you have to relook at him in the lens of history. I mean, if you look at the stats, they're second to none. As John, John said, there's an 11-year period from 64 to 74. He had the highest OPS plus of every player in baseball. At 11 years, the best offensive production. Even in 74, even when he left the team in early September, he still won, won the American League home run crown. So it's recasting the story. And that's one of our goals of our book. And we're fortunate we sold the documentary rights. And so it would be a documentary of, of the story. And we're just trying to educate people about what special person he was, what a great teammate. He had such baseball uh, innate knowledge. And he was, he was a, like a co-manager to Chuck Tanner. And he did the little things that people don't realize. I mean, he was probably one of the best base, base runners of all time. And it was so exciting to see him cut the base, especially how he would round third base. I've never seen another baseball player do it. And those are little things and he would do, hit to the right side of the, of the field to get a runner over. And he was just extraordinary special. And I was very fortunate. You know, like, you know, got to be very close to him, which I never expected as a as a teenager growing up in Chicago. But I think it's going to change. And I, and I think his next time he's up for the vote in 2026, I think our book that John and I have written is going to help retell that story because it's going to tell how special he was in one year, a pinnacle year, the most dominant player in baseball. Right. That, that negative, to add on what the uh, doc said, that negativity was entirely generated by the media. Um, his his relationship with with um, his uh, teammates were 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 uh, great. He was considered a mentor. We uh, in the book we talk specifically about his relationship with Hall of Famer Rich Goose Gossage. Uh, at first glance, these are two totally dissimilar people, but uh, Goose just idolized Dick and and, and credited him for being the uh, a mentor and a guy who taught him how to pitch, how to pitch inside, how to work hitters. Um, and, 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 and that's not an uncommon story with Dick. This was a common story throughout his career, especially his career with a young team like the White Sox. So the book will, you know, we'll look at that reputation that he got, that unfair uh, reputation as being a negative influence, uh, a clubhouse lawyer, a malingerer, and, and we we turned that on its head. And Dick was was just a, a, an ideal teammate, in addition to being perhaps the greatest player of his generation. For me, just it just seems very bizarre at this point that he, his family unfortunately still has to wait until you know possibly twenty twenty six. Dick, I mean, the other thing, and and Doc can talk about this as well, is that he, you know, he he didn't he didn't um, romance the media either. I mean, he he didn't really do his part to, to cozy up to the media. Maybe he could have done that better, but he didn't think that that was important. He thought it was important to, you know, play the game and, and, and do his, um, try to excel and, 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 and be a good teammate. Um, and the media was, was secondary and that, that, that definitely hurt him in the long run. 
On on a lighter note, though, I love the title of the book, Chili Dog MVP. Of course, there is a story uh, behind the nickname Chili Dog MVP. You wrote about it in the book. Can you tell fans about it that aren't familiar with the story? Well, sure. Yeah. So Dick, um, he came to the White Sox. He was traded in uh, late 1971 for Tommy John, another great player who's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, And immediately after after a, a, a strike that lasted uh, um, throughout early April once the strike was over he he was uh, just a, a force of nature for the white Sox. he immediately started producing and he played every game up until June 4th 1972 when the White Sox had a home double header at Comiskey Park against the hated Yankees so they're their major rival in the 1950s and 1960s. And the Yankees were sort of on their way down during that time. Um, But would be up again, as you know, in a few years. Um, And Dick played the first game of the uh, doubleheader. And his manager and and good friend Chuck Tanner decided to give him a rest in game two. Um, The owner, another hero for the White Sox, John Allen, stormed into the club, the clubhouse and said why isn't dick playing in the second game and chuck said you know he's been you know uh, carrying us through the season and we need to give him a rest and so he uh, i gave him a rest and dick spent his time in the clubhouse in the whirlpool just relaxing and and then got out of the whirlpool and uh, enjoyed a chili dog that was prepared by a clubhouse attendant named jim riley um, and was enjoying his food and not expecting to play. And uh, it, it, the White Sox were behind four to two in the bottom of the ninth. And uh, Sparky Lyle, the great reliever for the Yankees, was uh, on the mound. And uh, uh, Chuck Tanner uh, said, we have to have Dick in this situation. So he called Dick, who was still in the midst of eating his chili dog. And the chili dog was dribbling on his jersey. Um uh, a, a, another bat boy who we talked to named Rory Clark told Dick, you know, Chuck wants you to, to uh, come up and, and face Sparky Lyle in, a, in this situation where we've got a couple of men on base. And Dick ran out, still had chili dog juice on his jersey um, and proceeded to hit a screaming line drive into the left field stands to win the game for the White Sox five to four in front of a crowd of 51, 52,000, one of the largest crowds ever at Old White Sox Park on bat day. And the the stadium just exploded. And it was sort of a symbolic uh, game for Dick uh, uh, and a symbolic game for the season. Um, And hence the name Chili Dog MVP. We celebrate a signature moment of that year. And it's 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 a it's a legendary story. We're so fortunate, Fred, is that John and I we got all the firsthand sources. And, and in fact, the chili dog chef came with me to Orlando for our watch party for Dick. He wanted to be there. It was, it was meant a lot to the family. He was there. So yeah, we just, with Rory and Jim Riley and Jim O'Keefe, we just, we had the, all the inside story was going on. And we were, and, and you saw our list of interviewers. This is all firsthand accounts. Uh, and I think that's what makes the book so special is that this is not a clip job. This is original interviews, you know, plus I went to most of, most of those games. And I also have the Jerome Holtzman uh, personal library. He was the dean of, of, of the writers in Chicago and the first major league baseball historian. 
So I had incredible files from him, including the pitching coach, Johnny Sane, who is considered the, probably the best pitching coach of all time. Some people say uh, uh, Mazzoni, a guy from the Braves who learned under Johnny Sane, is, was better. But Johnny Sane was incredible, and I had his personal papers, and we just had great access, and people just lot, wanted to tell about the special team. And obviously the Chili Dog moment is, is just very special. Sort of getting back to the Michael Jordan analogy, it was like winning, you know, winning the game, winning shot when the buzzer goes off. And so we, we, we got some pictures of that. And it, the picture of him actually hitting the home run, the, his facial expressions say it all. He's dialed in, dialed in, baby. Much respect to you two for what you're doing for baseball history, for Dick Allen's story. Definitely incredible. People could check it out. ChiliDogMVP.com, of course, on Amazon as well. Is all right if I ask you about this Chicago Baseball Museum sure. that you founded? Sure. So, so how'd this all come about for you? I mean, you, you're a doctor. You're obviously in, in, incredibly busy. What made you wake up one day and say, you know what? I want to be the preserver of Chicago baseball history too. Well, it, it, it came out of outgrowth of my uh, Buck Weaver project. I did this uh, protest to Major League Baseball about Buck Weaver in 2003 when uh, um, White Sox hosted the, the All-Star game. And so it was another anniversary because the first one was in 1933 at Comiskey Park. So um, it just was a natural progression of, of that project. And I, I really felt, and, and John had a lot to do with that, with his film, uh, Baseball City Pastime. And it just kind of crystallized my idea that there needed to be an institution repository of all the nice, rich history with Chicago. I mean, we were still the only city that's got two charter you know american league team and an nl team uh and that's unique and uh, plus you know the all-star game started there and just you know it's it's we may not have that many trophies as far as championships but we, we do pretty well on some fun stories connected to chicago baseball so that was what was part of it and you know and that's you know you know john and i've you know been continuing hooking up and we got some ideas for some future projects um you know, we got, I got to be very close to some people. One of the characters we've not talked about with the Chili Dog MVP was, was part of this is our, the organist, Nancy Faust. And she's a big character in our book, but, you know, she was with the White Sox for 41 years. She invented walk-up music because of Dick Allen with Jesus Christ Superstar. And so we just felt her history and others was so important, even stuff like disco demolition that needed to be celebrated. But um so that's you know kind of how it started and, and you know basically i did it for uh stress management it was a, a way to get you know away from the rigors of, of being a physician of course everybody can check out the book chewy dog mvp chewy dog mvp.com uh, before we let you two go and one line or less why should people buy chewy dog mvp well i mean it tells a story about not only a team a, a charter american league team but it also tells a, a interesting story about the city and the area where that team uh, resides, specifically the south side of Chicago. So in addition to telling the story about Dick Allen and about the 1972 White Sox, we'll uh, also tell the story about a, a changing city, the, 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 you know, what some people call the most American of big cities, Chicago, and how um, things were changing in the late 60s and early 70s. And then the White Sox were sort of the center of that transforming Chicago. Read about a very special player and a very special team in a tumultuous time in the late 60s, early 70s in America. 
that has still impact 50 years later with this incredible ball player still barred from the Hall of Fame, never getting his due, who saved the franchise. Without this player, there would not be a Chicago White Sox.